This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk about journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Aurora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name is Peter Frey and coming up on the show, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg is proving that sorry is certainly not the hardest word, but will it be enough to prevent a wall of regulation hitting the social media giant? ABC boss Michelle Guthrie fronts Senate estimates again and in the spirit of Zuckerberg takes the blame for the corporation's recent editorial controversies. Two Reuters journalists in Myanmar are still in prison and who is talking about it? Well, the answer to that is we will be. And Al Jazeera is, seems to be disappearing from the ABC News 24 channel. All that plus MPs in Lycra. Is the media stretching audience attention just a little bit too far? Joining me, Peter Frey, today, uh, Stephen Brook, media diarist from The Australian. Hello, Stephen. Hello. Yarabu Maun, independent journalist and filmmaker. Hello, Yar. Hi, Peter. And Peter Kerr, news editor, newly minted news editor from The Australian Financial Review. Hi, Pete. Hi, Pete. Thank you for being with us. So we are finding out the answer to the question, how many times can Mark Zuckerberg, the founder and CEO of Facebook, express remorse and in how many ways? The 33-year-old Wunderkin has been fronting U.S. lawmakers in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica data breach scandal and a host of other crimes and misdemeanors dating back to at least the 2016 U.S. election when Facebook helped spread fake news and its critics say, get Donald Trump elected. So is sorry enough? Peter Kerr, what do you think? I must admit, Peter, I couldn't help but feel a little bit sorry for Mark when he was uh, appearing <laughs> before the uh, congressional hearings. Now, here he is. Okay, he's a billionaire, but he's 33. Look what he's done in a short period of time. And as he said, well, you know, we all make mistakes. Now, I think that Facebook has obviously um, erred. Uh, it hasn't been cautious enough. And, uh, but what I'm most worried about is that this could be the tip of the iceberg when we're in an age of sharing a lot of information. And this is actually just a little part of that. And I think it's not before time that um, we pay more attention to it. So is the logical response to that uh, greater oversight, greater regulation... Stephen, is that where we're heading? Is that where it seems to be where we're heading? I mean, and I think we are heading towards that. We're heading towards that in Europe as well as in the States. Mm. I think we may well also be heading in the medium term towards a new CEO. If you look at what has happened at other tech companies such as Google, the founders, you know, the geniuses who created Google, and um, you can compare and contrast them to Mark Zuckerberg, they don't run the company anymore. I think that Google took a long, hard look and worked out that the skills that are needed for a CEO 
is a very different type of person from the genius creator. And Mark Zuckerberg, he did get rid of the traditional T-shirt and put the suit and tie on, but I don't Ooh. think he fronted up and looked all that impressive in front of those congressmen. And I think that Facebook has poor management. I would add to Peter's comments with another descriptor, which is I think they've been spectacularly naive, perhaps willfully, we might find that out later on, in dealing with these data breaches. Uh, Cambridge Analytica it accepted assurances that this data was not being passed or sold on. The fake news um, disaster is something that has snowballed on their watch, and I think that uh, it may well be that with fronting up to these senators, Facebook is going to realise that a change of chief executive is going to be needed in an attempt to stave off which could be some pretty severe regulation. So what we, we they're really good points because what we're going to really is the nature of the business model of Facebook, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Facebook is an advertising. Uh, we agency in essence it connects it knows a lot about you and me so it can connect advertisers to us and sell things at us so is it the business model per se that we've all been a little bit naive about i mean are we the naive party here as well well i don't i, I don't want to talk about it in terms of naivety but i still think that facebook shouldn't be let off the hook that easily he can't be he looked like a little bit like a lost boy sitting in front of all of those lawmakers this morning getting a bit of a grilling. But Facebook knew about these data breaches well before it was brought out in public. Um, so do, you I, think, do we need oversight then? We need regulation is where we're heading? Is that what you think? Definitely. Needs, there needs to be oversight, regulation, and there needs to be some sort of penalty applied to Facebook because they knew about these data breaches because people were telling them and giving them files. And I know this because I'm about to go and film with a woman who's the editor of a news magazine in the Philippines who has a massive database um, tracking all of the fake accounts um, mm. at Facebook, the trolling accounts, the bots that have been set up to basically attack and undermine um, democracies and to attack dissenters. And so Facebook has known about this for a long time. So they can't say that we didn't know about these breaches. We... Uh, are sorry about them, we've made mistakes. Um, so they need to be held accountable for that, and then there needs to be more oversight and regulation. Mm, okay, that's interesting. I mean, because one of their defences is, in essence, uh, that you know, we were just the enablers, we are just the platform, right? But they knew. They knew, and they didn't come up, they didn't front They knew, they knew yeah. before Trump was elected how data was being manipulated around the world. Mm. Well, I think significantly today, Zuckerberg, correct me if I'm wrong, has come out and... Uh, gone beyond the platform excuse and has fessed up that mm. they are publishing and that is, you know, people are obtaining content from them. It might not be content they're generating, but they're certainly passing it on. So that's an interesting moment, isn't it? Because, as we all know, that one of the key threshold moments for Facebook has been we're not, we're not in the news media. We're just, you know, we're a platform. We're, we're agnostic. And if you're any sort of publisher, whether it be online or in print or radio, you get regulated mm. and you have to take responsibility for mm -hmm. the content. But they're also the public space for many, especially developing countries around the world. So this is where debate happens. This is where information is passed on. It's no longer radios or television. You know, most young people in the, in the developing world are going straight online. Mm. And so if that's where they're getting exposed or where they're getting the information from, that needs to be regulated. I think that's a really critical point because in Asia, you know, most young people, as you say, 
their first access to the internet is through a mobile phone and yeah. they're going straight to you know, the greatest penetration of mobile phone usage of anywhere in the world, really. Just pause here for a, a slight <coughs> bit of self-flagellation uh, flag, uh, because aren't we, the media, complicit in this? Haven't we willfully gone along with using Facebook? Haven't we, you know, even though we've seen the business model disappear and we blame Facebook for taking the advertising money, at the same time, you know, we've been using Facebook to gain our audiences, to find our information, to source stories, all these things. I mean, Facebook is, we have been using Facebook, uh, you know, as well as anyone, one would argue. So it's, is it a little bit rich for the media to turn around and kind of get all on their high mighty horse now? Yeah. Um, I don't think so. I mean, if it's one way of reaching an audience, uh, you would use it in the same way that we, you would use other platforms or social media sites like Twitter, um, If the same way that you would use email subscriptions um, to push it out to, to your audience. So it is just another way of reaching audiences. I don't think that using it means that we shouldn't be able to regulate it and call it out if it does something wrong. Yeah, sure. So do we have a we have a role to play in fixing Facebook, Stephen? Well, I think there has been a lot of attention from my newspaper, The Australian, which has been very critical about some of the techniques that Facebook has been using. I think you're right that a decade ago there was spectacular naivety amongst news groups about pushing their content out online. We wanted a free and open internet and we weren't going to force anyone to subscribe. We thought we could survive on ad revenue and um, that turned out to be sadly not the case because Facebook took it all. So I don't have a problem with the uh, news organisations trying to make their digital strategies work in partnership with other institutions and then turning around and saying, well, Facebook for everyone turned out to be something that we didn't quite think it was. Mm. Yes, I think you'd argue we're just doing our job at that point. Mm. Yeah. I think it took people by surprise. Yes, really. well, yeah. I think those surprises are going to keep mm. coming, and uh, I say we might well be talking about Facebook uh, another time, another show. Thank you for listening to The Fourth Estate, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney. My name is Peter Frey, and if you don't like the sound of me and my slightly old pommy accent, you, my producer Nina Capel will be doing the show next week, so stay tuned. It's going to get better. Uh, you are listening to The Fourth Estate, where journos talk about journalism. I'm Peter Frey, and joining me this week at the show are Yara Bumelan, uh, all-round superstar TV producer, filmmaker, reporter, uh, Peter Kerr, um, former foreign editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, now returning to the bosom of Fairfax's news editor of the AFR, and Stephen Brook, the, the must-read Australians media diarist read it every Monday who incidentally um, came back to from this country from the Guardian so who says that oil and blood doesn't mix um, what a very colorful descriptor thank you Peter. <laughs> my pleasure my pleasure so and the theme of Mark Zuckerberg we've uh, seen this week the performance of the managing director of the ABC Michelle Guthrie who has gone yet again before Senate estimates one of the nicest parts of her job no doubt so both her and Alan Sunderland, the ABC editorial director, face a slew of claims and cross-claims about bias, about Emma Alberici's economic competence, and the cabinet files that kind of got away and ended up back with the government. Listening to her this week, I'm reminded about how very different Guthrie is compared with her predecessor, Mark Scott. Scott instinctively knew how to work the room. Guthrie seemed more or less sort of sandblast it, really, with her constant responses. You've been following this very close, closely, Stephen. What did you make of Guthrie at Senate? 
She's definitely not as smooth as Mark Scott was, and she's not as comfortable with the questions about editorial matters and journalism, which particularly pertains to the thorny issues the ABC's unexpectedly found itself having to deal with this year, which was the very contentious Emma Alberici stories on corporate tax and the uh, the cabinet files. Um, lots of questions from the senators, some on notice. Interestingly enough, a lot of the answers came out uh, the previous day to her testimony, so there wasn't a lot of repetition. I think that uh, Guthrie did come out and say that as a result of the big reorganisation that she had initiated, there were problems in the editorial structure of the ABC. That was a factor in... Did you uh, believe her in that? Well, no, I had thought that all along. I had thought that the uh, if you can compare, the ABC is getting into digital in a big way, so they want written, authored online pieces. And I always wondered about the expertise of, as say, a newspaper arrangement with lots of different pairs of eyes looking at these things before they get up. The evidence was that the business editor had reviewed the news article and the business editor and the... Uh, sort of opinion editor had reviewed the analysis piece and I think any newspaper journalist would tell you that is inadequate Mm. for such a big complicated story and a big hit that they wanted to dominate the news cycle and that's what the ABC admitted today. Yes, it was an interesting performance today. I mean, it wasn't Zuckerberg-esque. I mean, she didn't say sorry all the time. Uh, she was on point a lot. I mean, last time last time in Senate, Guthrie Yarrow uh, went before estimates, and she was criticized for failing to really strongly defend Emma Arborici. This time she was much stronger, while still admitting there were errors were made, some of which are, you know, using what the, the excuse that Stephen just mentioned. Do you, do you think she's convincing as, as, as the MD of the ABC, sort of forging this new digital path for Australian journalism? Look, I think she comes from a business background. Maybe she doesn't yet um, understand just how important it is to be basically the primary champion of the fourth estate in the country as head of the um, the country's national public mm. broadcaster. I that's mean, quite that's, a mantle, isn't it? It is, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a huge responsibility, and I think it's something that uh, Mark Scott had a number of years to be able to hold and um, be able to create his own identity as uh, bearing that sort of responsibility. And Michelle's still new to this. And just on that point, I mean, I think Mark was very good at bringing the ABC staff with him whether, you know, he's always, I mean, I've worked with Mark over many years. He's, he's very good at working in the room, very good at sort yeah, of he's listening. He's very charismatic as well. He has yeah. charisma. Yeah. I wouldn't say he's very charismatic, but he has charisma, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and maybe Michelle Guthrie isn't quite, well, she isn't that sort of person. So are we judging her by the wrong standard, perhaps? Um, I, I think that um, there is uncertain times at the ABC and all media organisations generally especially with the transition to digital, which is what she's really pushing for at the moment. And so I think it would be, yes, unfair to first of all judge her by her predecessor and also at the same time judge the period that we're in to that of her predecessor because there is a big shake-up at a place like the ABC at the moment and Mm. there is a lot of uncertainty. There would be people who are... Um, unsure of oh, exactly what to make of her. A time of time of great uncertainty, as we all know. Peter, the Mitch Fifield, the communications minister, was questioned in this uh, in this hearing about his relationship with the ABC, and there's so he has a bit of a tendency to shoot the messenger 
and and he's not alone there, Peter. He's not alone in there. He's a long, long line all the way back to uh, the first, you know, Greek minister probably shot the first, you know, person with the wrong tablet or something. But nonetheless, do you think we've got a government in in, in and, a, and a minister in Mitch Farfield who is perhaps too prone to interference, not allowing the ABC to do its thing? Well, it's always going to be a tension, I think, and I think this particular government has shown itself to be a little bit more um, ready to criticise openly and seek change, and that's been written about a lot. I think, Michelle, um, I agree with Yara, I think it's um, a little bit early to be judging her too harshly. I think that you know, it's a ritual whipping that you get in Senate estimates, and um I think that um, it's a matter of time to steal yourself for that and to be used to it a little bit more. Mm. And I think that um, in terms of the Emma Alberici case, I mean, that was a difficult one to work your way through. And as Stephen has said, there were certain checks and balances along the way that apparently didn't come into play. And in terms of uh, Minister Fifield, I think that... Um, um, yeah, I think that's always... I'm uncomfortable when the government is pressing the ABC too hard, I think. Well, just on that bigger point, uh, Stephen, um, I mean, the, the Rupert Murdoch and his father and his sons uh, have all kind of made the, the case many times that the ABC is too big, too powerful, too well-funded, and that it really should be uh, a market failure, a broadcaster of market failure, and it should stay out of the uh, stay out of the mainstream, in effect, and do you know fill in the gaps. Where do you think we're going with that argument? Do you think you know that uh, that the coalition, in a sense, is the receptacle of that argument, and that you know they talk about the wages of the ABC and you know how much does lease sales earn and the date of the hottest one hundred? All these things that kind of pop up every so often are just evidence that the, we really have a government that doesn't really like the ABC. I don't know that that is true. Obviously, some elements of the conservative wing of the government, Tony Abbott, Erica Betts, have been very critical about the ABC. I don't think any of them have recently uh, come up with the market failure line, but all media is suffering. There is going to be a competitive neutrality inquiry that has been pushed by Channel 9 and supported by Pauline Hanson to look at whether the ABC is using its government-funded status to initiate programs that harm commercial competitors. I think the ABC will, over the next couple of months, be very keen to push a transparency, transparency and accountability and really make that a watchword. I actually disagree slightly. I think that Malcolm Turnbull is quite benign. Mm. I think he's an ABC fan. Mm. I think you can go back to the Howard era, even the Hawke and Keating era and it's a fact of life that government MPs are going to criticise the ABC harshly. Fifield did address this in Senate estimates. He said, yeah, I get in contact, I write letters, lots of politicians do and express their opinion. I do that because I know the ABC is independent and it's going to make up its own mind on the issues that I raise. Okay, just quickly around the table before we get on to our next subject, is the ABC too big? Would you be, ba would you be making more money if the ABC wasn't, didn't exist? Oh, not at all. Okay, fine. All. Peter, is the ABC too big? No, bigger the better, I say. Stephen, is the ABC too big? I think that it has to recognise once it gets into the digital space that it is competing with a whole bunch of other media organisations in terms of trying to get eyeballs for viewers that it didn't in the traditional television so and broadcast. So what? 
space. Well, I think the world has changed. I think that um, it has to be, uh, you know, mainstream organizations are suffering, newspapers are suffering, and the ABC has now come along as a text-based competitor, whereas historically it wasn't. But it was a competitor before for eyeballs on the, on the television. Yeah, it wasn't in the text and, and if you like, the digital spaces we now have. I mean, the ABC... It doesn't matter. It's a new space. Uh, no, but it's, it's the same sort of concept. Mm. You know, everyone else was on TV. Mm. It, was, it could have been seen as a competitor then. Mm. But not everyone else has taxpayers' money behind it, I guess would be the point. Yeah, but it's, provi- it's providing a very crucial public service for the country. Yep. Nope. But we're not arguing about whether it should exist or not. We're arguing about the quantum of it. Mm. I, I have a funny feeling we could do a whole show on this uh, ABC question, and I think it's one of the central questions of Australian journalism. And I'm happy to go back to it later on. But uh, for now, we're going to move on. You're um, listening to The Fourth Estate, where journalists talk about journalism and stuff. And my name is Peter Frey, and I will be back to you in, in a second. You are listening to The Fourth Estate, where journos talk about journalism. I'm Peter Frey, and joining me this week on the show are Yarabu Mount, TV reporter, documentary maker extraordinaire, Peter Kerr, the new news editor of the Australian Financial Review, and Stephen Brook, the must-read media diarist from The Australian. Um, just touching on a little subject here, which has kind of doesn't really feature too much in uh, the local media anyway. So last week we did bring you a little story about Myanmar and how Facebook had played a role in the Rohingya crisis. But now another story from Myanmar comes to mind. There are two journalists from Reuters who have been imprisoned by the country for about three months. The reporters, Wa Lon and K Sa O, are being accused of violating Myanmar's Official Secrets Act and face up to 14 years in prison, basically for doing their job. So my question really is this. Is the media, having loved and lionized Aung San Suu Kyi for so long, pulling its punches on the jailing of journalists and the ongoing Rohingya crisis. What do you think, Yara? Um, I'm not quite sure what it's like exactly in the Australian media, but definitely internationally, um, she's been seen as a bit of a pariah. There have been calls to strip her of her uh, Nobel Peace Prize, which, of course, cannot happen. Once it's given, it can't be taken back. Um, there has been um, There has been a lot of outspoken... Um, and quite critical um, commenta- commentator, um, excuse me, there's been a lot of critical commentary from the US State Department, from um, the EU. So it's, it's not as though um, she's been put up on this pedestal and now we can't bring her back down. Mm. Um, people are now recognizing that she's not the democracy icon that we all thought she was. Yes, she had been under house arrest for a number of decades. Yes, um, a lot of different uh, Western governments did want her to be the model uh, mm. democ- <laughs> the, the model uh, in the leader yep. in the region. Yep. That didn't happen. I mean, yep. after 30-odd years of trying to get to the position that she's in now, she's not going to let that be derailed by the Rohingya issue. That's that's the bottom line. And she's not going to be let it derailed by a couple of Reuters journalists doing their jobs, it seems. Well, that, that case is really interesting because it seems to have been a case of entrapment, according to a lot of activists. Basically, these journalists were invited to dinner by some police officers yeah. that um, they hadn't known before. Mm. Mm. As soon as they leave the dinner, they're given these mm. documents and then they're arrested immediately. They hadn't even had time, apparently, to look at the documents. And these documents are seen to be 
um, official secrets, and so they've been taken under these this colonial period, uh, colonial era law. Um, yeah, it sounds under a total official setup. secrets. Yeah, a total setup. Absolutely, and they they've been investigating a case of or a, a mass mm. a mass murder, a grave burial site in the north of Rakhine State where the military had basically been leading a campaign to expel a lot of Rohingya. So a lot of people are linking it to that. Right. Well, it does seem direct link to that, doesn't it? Uh, Peter Kerr, you know, you've been a foreign editor. It's tricky getting, uh, you know, balancing coverage, right? Um, and it's tricky doing this region, even though, you know, we are in this region. How would you, you know, put your foreign editor back, hat back on. How, I, would you, how would you, what would you be doing about this story? Yeah, well, I, I, I absolutely think we should all be outraged with what's been going on with Rohingya. I think that um, media outlets have been doing quite a lot of reporting on it. They've sent people in. We've seen images. They've been... It, it's been horrendous. I think Aung San Suu Kyi is tainted and will always be tainted. Um, in terms of what we should be doing as, as... or I should be doing as a foreign editor, I keep telling the stories, but I do... The trouble with um, foreign news in particular, um, I think Australia does tend to be a bit insular. We have an easy life here. We get on with our lives. And there's a sense of fatigue about reporting those issues. You know, you can keep isn't it, pushing it well, out I, there. But, I don't disagree for a second, mm. but isn't it, uh, Stephen, somewhat about how you report these issues? You know, I, it's about how much resources you put into it and how much commitment you give to it. Because, you know, I've read a couple, in recent times, a couple of terrific stories about these Reuters journalists, but which I have not read here. Uh, and I feel like I should, but is it a case of I always, you know, you always want more? Uh, well, I do think foreign news is very expensive. I think the other point to make is that audiences and media work off narratives, and the narrative for so long was Aung San Suu Kyi, sorry, mispronouncing her name, um, you know, was this hero of democracy. I think when she was released, she was on the front page of the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, so it was a story that crossed all media and the truth has become something different and that she has got this powerful position now in the government and she seems beholden to certain interests and if she's not actively prosecuting this persecution, she's certainly not doing anything to stand mm. in its way. So she's made a deal um, and I think it did take the Western media certainly a, a long time to wake up to that. I don't, in terms of journalists, I'm not convinced that um, readers care too much about the plight of journalists so much. Um, and I think that's a, it, well, a real shame. But, I mean, if you look at... Um, we kind of cared about uh, Peter Grester. Uh, yes. A lot. And I think we cared about Peter Grester because his family was so incredible. Right. So, again, this goes to Stephen's point about constructing narrative, mm. right? We like a good narrative, a good story. I mean, and I think, well, Peter Grester was Australian, which makes a, a huge difference. And I think, mm. you know, there was a feeling that if we didn't campaign or tell this story, then who was going to? I think the unfortunate journalists in Myanmar have a greater difficulty in that they've been locally engaged and Reuters is reporting their case very comprehensively. Mm. But uh, I think the Australian public, Peter is right, are more interested in real people, shall I say, Oof. and their plight. I just wonder than whether journalists are real people. Surely. I mentioned this case before of James Rickardson yeah. in Cambodia, who is not young, has been mm. in prison in Cambodia since I think June last year, is in a 
a cell which has you know 20 or 30 people about as big as this studio and is very ill and we read a little bit about it occasionally but yeah. for the most part we move on. I mean, so, when it's a yeah, Michelle no. Corby, then uh, we oh, go off. That ticks all the boxes, that's, that's, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, is it I'm hard, really it's hard doing this, that isn't case, it? Isn't, that, that particular yeah, case. I'm really well. surprised that nobody has been really campaigning for this for this man. Right. Well, maybe um, we should start now. Yeah, Well, sure. let's start now. Sure. But uh, to get back to the other two Reuters journalists in Myanmar, I think it only has only just become a bit more of a sexier case to cover because... Amal Clooney has been um, retained as one right. of the international lawyers. So that gives it a bit of profile. Well, yes. and there Certainly. will be an uptick in coverage, guaranteed. Yes. yes. Well, let's hope so. Because you can add a, the celebrity luster yes. to that, that human rights story. Thank you. Uh, you're listening to The Fourth Estate, and we will we'll be back very soon. Thank you for listening to The Fourth Estate, broadcasting from downtown Sydney in the heart of Gadigal. Joining me, Peter Frey, this week are Stephen Brook, media diarist from The Australian, Peter Kerr uh, from uh, the AFR. I'm sorry, I forgot your new geek. News well, editor. I change so often. Uh, that's right. <laughs> but uh, thanks for the enthusiasm. Yes. <laughs> and Yara Boom-Alam, uh, the always enumerative, award-winning, independent uh, reporter and filmmaker. I'm going to go with you uh, first here, Yara. Um, there's been a little bit of chat around the fact or not fact that the ABC News 24 uh, seems to not running Al Jazeera anymore. And I know you have a bit of an interest in Al Jazeera. But uh, one way of looking at it is the ABC is bowing to the likes of Corey Bernardi, uh, and Erica Betts, who have criticised the ABC for running what they call Islamic propaganda, or is it simply that the resources issues that we've talked about, um, uh, the reorganisation, the resources at the ABC, are meaning that they're running uh, Stan Grant and news bulletins from Perth instead of Al Jazeera? Do you think Australians are poorer for not seeing Al Jazeera? Oh, definitely. I think Al Jazeera brings a perspective, and I'm saying this as a completely independent, impartial person who doesn't contribute. Actually, no, I contribute quite a bit to Al Jazeera, especially in the Asia-Pacific region, so I'm going to make that disclaimer. Um, but definitely, you do get a, a broader range of stories on a broader range of issues than you normally would. Al Jazeera really prides itself on... Um, finding stories in really underrepresented regions, especially Africa and Asia, which is where, surprisingly enough, a lot of the viewership for Al Jazeera English actually comes from. It's in those two regions, not particularly the Middle so East. So is this a retrograde step by the national broadcaster to, to I, shove it off? I'm not sure if it was like a deliberate decision to say, hey, okay, we're getting this pressure from, uh, from the government, let's axe Al Jazeera, because in the same breath, they, in the same motion they had also axed um, running the BBC. As to resources, there is no funding arrangement, I know that for sure, between the ABC and Al Jazeera. So it had nothing to do with resources. Okay. All right. Uh, Stephen Brook, is this a win for the Conservatives again or, or just a storm in a media teacup? Oh, I think probably the latter. I think that renter quote Corey Bernardi would probably like to claim it as a win. I think the ABC probably looked at Al Jazeera and other international services and decided whether that was a nice-to-have um, on their channel or a must-have, and clearly they decided it wasn't a must-have. I'm relaxed about this. I think that if the Australian, uh, sorry, if the ABC wants to turn its focus to Australian journalists reporting um, to Australians, then that's a good policy. Well, Stan Grant's gain 
is Al Jazeera's loss. Uh, what do you think, Peter? I think that um, listeners, audiences need as broad a uh, scope to uh, hear different stories as Yara said. I think that um, the ABC, like other um, Australian news organisations, is having to cut back on its foreign coverage. I think that's just making Australia more insular. It's more difficult to... Um, cover things from a, a foreign uh, per- perspective and it's a shame um, if Al Jazeera is, has lost an opportunity but I wouldn't necessarily blame the ABC I suppose mm. but um, I just think that the, the more news from uh, more sources we and more perspectives we can get the better. I think it's still on Foxtel. Mm. Yeah it's, still, it's actually still running on the ABC. So right. even though they not they're not cut, so let's just clarify it yes, to please. two separate points here. Yeah. The ABC is not cutting to Al Jazeera bulletins to just run it right. as, during as the as evening. Yeah. But what it is still doing is using Al Jazeera packages and Al Jazeera live reporting from around the world. So, so if they don't have someone a, right. in Zimbabwe or if they don't have someone in Myanmar, right. they're still cutting to Al Jazeera packages. Okay, so we can still see you on ABC News 24. Yes. Oh, wow. Which I think is actually better use of Al Jazeera. Yes, and possibly a, a better use of ABC It's cherry-picking. Cherry-picking yeah. where you don't have coverage uh, or perspectives or certain perspectives, then you can, you can run that. Okay. Thank you for listening to Fourth Estate, and we'll be back very soon. Welcome back to Fourth Estate, where journalists talk about journalism. Joining me this week uh, are Yarabu Malmf, independent filmmaker, reporter extraordinaire, Peter Kerr, the new news editor of the Australian Financial Review, and Stephen Brook, the Australian's media director, and a whole heap of other things besides. Um, we couldn't let the week go by without mentioning the wonderful juxtaposition of Tony Abbott in Lycra, uh, cycling past a coal power power station as part of the annual polypedal and coincidentally news about the 30th news poll in a row that Malcolm Turnbull had lost. Of course, that was the reason that uh, Turnbull gave two and a half years ago for rolling Mr. Abbott from the top job and it gave Tony Abbott and his mates in Lycra a chance to uh, talk about coal power, 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 power stations, uh, the greenhouse effect, uh, the Monash group, and of course uh, the future of uh, the Turnbull government. But my question, I guess, is hasn't the nation suffered enough? Uh, we Another view of men in Lycra strolling around the countryside looking for all intents and purposes as people who would be better off in a suit. What do you think, Stephen Brooke? I too much lycra? Uh, definitely too much lycra. I think, uh, well, I, I do agree with you, but probably for different reasons. A few weeks ago, I went to a focus group where we watched some evening news stories from Channel 7 and Channel 9, and the story that got absolutely no interest from this focus group, no one put up their hand, was this, you know, Abbott versus Turnbull leadership tensions. I think the public are bored by this. They don't think Abbott is going to return. Uh, they switch off whenever it is raised, and I think there was probably far too much time and space devoted to this 30th news poll story this week. It's a cheap and easy story for all media to do. Um, everybody knew that it was coming. Everyone knew what the result was going to be. 
please put us out of our misery by focusing on some other political stories that might interest the public, which are traditionally very bored by politics anyway. Yes, indeed. And this, but this is the media, as Stephen says, Peter, uh, the media creating the story. I mean, it was there was no way on on the on the earth that the 30th news poll wouldn't go past without um, you know a, a load of stories. And you so, know, why not report it? with men in lycra. Well, indeed, um, why not? Why not? Men in lycra? Just liven it yes. up a bit. I yeah. mean, we're talking about... Some people might like men in lycra. I don't know. Well, it's like yeah. watching a train crash. You just can't go away. Um, but, you know, remember, this is um, a former prime minister who came to power in red budgie smugglers. So, uh, you know, that's uh, that's part of the image. I, I was um, okay with... Uh, with uh, uh, Tony in in Lycra, it's Kevin. Did you wear, I didn't. Do you Kevin wear didn't. Lycra? Uh, no, <laughs> no. But I know. Hearing? No, quite the opposite. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm not a mammal. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> but no, it was Kevin Andrews. I thought who looked a little bit uh, out of place and uncomfortable. But no, ultimately, I agree with you, Stephen. You know, it's a, it's a pity we couldn't um, talk about other things other than that train that yes. we saw coming. Yes, I think mm. Paul Kelly, columnist on The Australian, is very interesting on this, and he says the conservative elements get a lot of airtime in various outlets, but they fail each and every time to prosecute their case and influence the agenda, and we saw that with gay marriage, which they lost, this whole idea about setting up some bizarre government-funded Nikolai and Elena Ceausescu memorial power station right out of the Soviet era, They've lost that argument as well, uh, and they continue to get a lot of airtime, but fail each and every time to prosecute their case. Of course, the men in Lycra is an example of the media, especially TV news, needing vision. I just so, it, yeah. so would you have done that? I mean, if you needed the vision, wouldn't, wouldn't you have done that? I mean, I mean, yes, you would have used that vision because it's yeah. just so out there. But I just I still find it extraordinary that um, all of these stunts that basically Tony Abbott are pulling is pulling to get this airtime, like launching the book with Pauline Hanson's book, for instance. I mean, all of these, like, why are we, why are we covering this? He's mm. a backbencher. And he's a former prime minister, but... An influential backbencher. I think that we, as in the media, are covering it because it's there. And we can send a camera along and there'll be a quote there and we can cut it together. It's, well, it's, it's a bit of an indictment on us, then, are you saying? Well, yeah, I think it's a la it's lazy journalism. Sport can be lazy journalism. There's a match on, turn up, film a bit, get a bit of commentary. Mm. Crime, you know, there's some criminal. A car crash has happened. Turn up, film it, put it to air. This is another example of things being provided to journalists, and everyone is too busy to go and dig out good stories. I, I don't that think are you can there. not turn up. Though you know, when you know something's on, if you're a chief of staff or a, a news director or editor, and you know that um, a certain uh, image is going to be there, something could go wrong. So you have to be there once you're well, there. Tony you've got Abbott time might in, fall off of his. He might. Might fall off his might. lycra. Oh, he yeah, might say something that's completely outrageous. Nobody and wants those images. No, no, might eat another onion. <laughs> yeah. He might. And then, you know, you'll be the ones who didn't get it, so you're invested, and so therefore you end up... Right, it. well, this um, it's interesting. You know, the only place where news is never predictable is, of course, the Fourth Estate, which you have been listening to here on 2SER, and where journalists talk about journalism and, apparently, sometimes men in Lycra. Tonight's guests have been the... Erudite Peter Kerr from Fairfax Media, the, the news editor of the Australian Financial Re Review, the very thoughtful 
and somewhat controversial Yarraboo Mellum, uh, independent filmmaker, report, reporter, and the effervescent Stephen Brook from The Australian. My heartfelt thanks go to my producer, Nina Capel, who will be doing the show next week. My name is Peter Frey, and until next time, have a great week. Thank you.